This episode is brought to you by the Rockefeller Foundation. The Rockefeller Foundation is a pioneering philanthropy built on collaborative partnerships at the frontiers of science, technology, and innovation in order to enable individuals, families, and communities to flourish. The foundation works to promote the well-being of humanity and make opportunity universal. Its focus is on scaling renewable energy for all, stimulating economic mobility, and ensuring equitable access to healthy and nutritious food. Through its good food strategy, the Rockefeller Foundation seeks to improve the diets of 500 million people through an equitable and regenerative food system by 2030. To achieve this, the foundation is working with people and organizations across the globe to bolster science and data, support policy change, and leverage existing funding in order to increase the availability and accessibility of food that's good for people and planet. To learn more about the Rockefeller Foundation's work, follow them on Twitter or visit rockefellerfoundation.org. We the chefs, we the chefs, are working together to create a better food future. I am George, Andy, Tom from Nigeria, Switzerland, Los Angeles, London, India, New Zealand. Ingredients are medicine. Ingredients are superpowers. Food is joy. Food is love. Food is life. A very warm welcome back to the Chef's Manifesto podcast and to this mini season on climate-friendly, healthy food choices in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation. As today is the first time I'm hosting the podcast, let me quickly introduce myself. My name is Anahita Dhondi. I am from India and a chef living in the buzzing Indian capital that is New Delhi. I am the former chef partner at Soda Bottle Opnawala, which is a Bombay Rani cafe and was working there for almost nine years. I have recently published a cookbook, which is called The Parsi Kitchen, which is about family, community and recipes from my cuisine and community of Parsis in India. I'm a proud member of the Chef's Manifesto and have been involved in the network's many activities over the years, from participating in the Eat Forum in Stockholm to recently representing the Chef's Manifesto at the Expo 2020 in Dubai. For those of you who are new to our channel, the Chef's Manifesto is a network for over a thousand chefs from 90 countries around the world who explore how to drive progress on sustainable development and on ensuring good food for all. Two years ago, we launched the Chef's Manifesto podcast as a content channel and resource for chefs to learn and share stories of their action on sustainable development tied to the UN Sustainable Development Goals. In the past three seasons, we did dive deep on the eight thematic areas shone a light on how the pandemic affected chefs around the world and spotlighted a series of resilient, diverse crops as part of a full series on biodiversity. In this mini-series, we will focus on food choices and such that are climate-friendly and healthy. In the next two episodes and one bonus episode, we will take a closer look at what climate-friendly, healthy food actually is and how it connects to the Chef's Manifesto's thematic areas and the SDGs. And we'll discuss individual choices and choices along the value chain. How do people choose what to eat? How as chefs can we influence food choices to ensure that they are good 
for both people and planet? And how should we move forward and drive the change the world and its food systems urgently need? In the first episode, I'll be focusing on the topic mainly from the perspective of cooking together with two chefs and one expert. And in the second episode, we'll hear from another food systems expert and two amazing food system vision prize winners who've been developing visions of regenerative and nourishing food systems that they aspire to create by the year 2050. I'm so excited to be talking to all my guests in these two episodes, learning more from their experiences and sharing my own too. And make sure to stay tuned after the second episode because we've got a treat for you in a deep dive bonus episode to be released shortly after. So let's head straight in. Today, I will welcome three guests to the podcast, two chefs who I'm sure many of you already know and an expert who will shed some light onto the scientific aspects of the topic we'll discuss. First, let me introduce you to fellow chef and good friend Arthur Potts Dawson. Arthur, you've been cooking for over 35 years, starting your career as a chef in 1987 with a three-year apprenticeship with the Rue Brothers. Since then, you worked at Kensington Palace as head chef at the River Cafe and alongside Hugh Fernley, Whittingstall and Pierre Kaufman. I could go on and on, but would like to mention your two restaurants too, a corn house and water house, which both have won numerous awards for their excellent food and sustainable practices, such as a rooftop garden, low energy refrigerators, wormeries, proving the profitability of an eco-friendly approach. Additionally, Chef Arthur, you founded the People's Supermarket, a supermarket that connects the urban community with the local farming community by stocking high-quality and environmentally friendly produce from trusted local suppliers. Welcome to the podcast, Chef Arthur. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. You were a part of the very first season of the Chef's Manifesto podcast two years ago, and it's fantastic to have you back. To kick off this conversation, as I know that you're one of the founding members of the Chef's Manifesto, I'd love to know a little more about what got you into food and sustainability and into advocacy around cooking food that is good for people and planet. Uh, Hi, Chef Danita. It's fantastic to be able to talk to you and great to be on this podcast. Um, Yeah, well, I mean, some of the earliest um, uh, days of the Chef's Manifesto were founded on how can we create something that chefs are going to be able to use as a narrative for sustainability in their kitchens? How do we move forward the sustainable development goals, what that narrative actually is, and, and how chefs can in some way build on what the, the, the narrative is from the SDGs, but also because a lot of chefs are already doing quite of the, you know, a lot of the, the water retention, the energy management, really understanding about food waste, knowing about energy and, and you know, really connecting to the seasons and, and, and nature. You know, the manifesto was really just to bring everybody together under one umbrella. Um, and the manifesto was, was born of, of many chefs believing in, in the same thing. So, yeah, one of the earliest members, and I sort of saw the manifesto being written um, and like to think that I had some involvement in it. You know, I mean, I've been working in sustainability and, and sustainable food for 
for nearly 20 years, but I've been cooking for 35 years. I've worked with some of the most amazing chefs in the world, and I've been trained by some of the most amazing chefs in the world and worked with some of the most amazing ingredients. And when you work with amazing chefs and amazing ingredients, you start to gain a level of respect for food, for soil, for water, um, for really understanding good flavors and why good flavors um, translate out of the soil and onto the plate. And you quickly see that if you aren't working with nature and you aren't working with seasonality and you aren't building a sustainable narrative and, and picking your herbs and understanding, you know, why it needs to be fresh and, um, you know, what the, uh, what the importance of good animal husbandry is or, you know, how to, how to hand pick grapes and all of these sorts of things go into producing great food. So really having a look at that firsthand, visiting the farmers, getting the food delivered in reusable boxes, getting the flavors onto the plate and not throwing anything away in the kitchen, just becomes second nature. Remembering that my earliest years when I was 16 in the kitchen, we were taught the ecology, how and where this product comes from. But that very quickly becomes the economy of the kitchen too. So the ecology and economy of a kitchen go hand in hand. If you throw something away, then you might as well just be throwing money in the bin. So, you know, there's sensibilities around business and your business not only has to be naturally or nature focused sustainable, but it also needs to be business sustainable. You can't just throw food away and let the taps run and keep your energy running and overstart the place and, and not have it well organized. If you're well organized, well structured and have a good foundation with your supply chain, you basically become sustainable. That is so true. And there's so much to learn. Every time I read something from the Chef's Manifesto or I, or I speak to any other chef, there's so much to learn about the Chef's Manifesto. So today we're talking about climate-friendly, healthy food choices. What comes to your mind when thinking about this topic and how does it fit in our endeavor to transform our food systems? Well, that's exactly what I'm working on at the moment, Anahita. Health and healthy. And, and what is healthy? Um, what is good for your body? And if you consume something that's healthy, it generally improves your state of mind. It makes you mentally healthy. Uh, and if you create food that's for the body and for the mind, both healthy, then the planet follows along. So really well-produced food that comes out of healthy soil will generate in balance a healthy body. Uh, and in return, you then get a, a healthy planet on the back of that because you're looking at ingredients that are grown with respect, understanding that we can't overconsume anything, making sure that we're working with our farmers, paying our farmers the right amount of money for the crops that they're producing. Because if the system isn't supported and given the proper respect, then the food system is going to come crashing down around us. And if the food system crashes, then the planet crashes. So, you know, talking about climate-friendly food is for us to be eating produce that um, grows seasonally, it doesn't have to be shipped all over the world constantly. We need to make sure that our food isn't covered in airline or shipping fuel. Um, and the more reliance we have on a, a localised food system, the, the healthier it will be. So what comes into mind when thinking about this topic is not so much needing to transform our food systems, but transform the way we think about how we consume our food, which will basically shift the way our food systems operate. So we need to transform people's thinking towards healthy body, healthy mind will equal healthy planet. So it's very much about um, making sure people understand why food is delicious, how food can be more simple, and why we don't need to be over-consuming meat, why we need to be looking at much more resilient 
based seeds and looking to grow seeds that grow well in the climate that's around us, whether you're in West Africa and you're eating funio, whether you're in India and eating millet and whether you're in England eating peas, we need to be understanding where the product comes from and why it's good for our soil. So healthy soil, healthy body, healthy planet. That's so true. I mean, I honestly love eating millets and like talking about it and cooking it. So I know what you're talking about. But there's another very important question, which is how in your experience can we influence people's food choices and what is the role of chefs in this effort? I'd love to hear your experience, especially through your work with the people's supermarket, influencing choices of consumers, but also across the supply chain. Uh, influence is a, a, a big point. What's really interesting, both from a British perspective, maybe not perhaps so much through Europe, but perhaps in North America, Anita, you'll have to tell me about India another time. But, you know, the idea is, is that we've been growing up in a state that has been now mainly controlled by the supermarkets. And the supermarkets influence the way we think about the food that we eat. The problem is that is that supermarkets are created to produce profit now, profit is easily made if you sell very cheap product, for example, um, bleached white flour, sugar, uh, fizzy pop, chocolate, and you influence people's purchasing habits through advertising and bright colors, great smells, and you know, instant gratification, which usually comes from salty, fatty, sugary foods. What we need to be able to build into people's lives is an understanding that your food choices are not only going to influence your body, but they're also influencing the planet, as I've just said. So to influence people's food choices, we need to be making people aware of why it's important to eat something healthy for your body, why it's important to have children's food not covered in sugar and saturated fats, and you know, making sure that we have a, a healthier understanding of what food is and the role that it plays in our lives, uh, and not just be influenced by the shops that we walk into who are basically designed to make money. So the people's supermarket was founded in order to not make money, so it's a not-for-profit, and the idea is that we found local supermarket chains that would produce food for us that didn't have to travel very far, that was healthier options, as organic as possible, and as a chef, opening a supermarket, I could very um, quickly influence the consumers that walked in through the door by saying, here's a way of buying food that's different to your regular choices walking around a big supermarket and pushing a trolley around because those big trolleys that trundle around supermarkets will have some fruit and vegetable in them. They have quite a lot of sugar, quite a lot of um, processed wheat, and quite a lot of fat. And it's just become a norm. So we have to break the myths and, and, and the habitual purchasing of produce that makes these companies a lot of money and look for food that isn't just a commodity. We need food to do something that not only to heal the planet, but also be used to heal our bodies. So chefs need to be able to influence consumers by saying to people, eat fresh, eat local, eat more vegetables, consume less meat. If you are going to eat meat, make sure that it's organic or at least free range and have some semblance of a, of a life that was worth living before being killed and eaten. And the supply chain is only really going to produce food that people are eating. They're not going to produce stuff that just sits on the shelf and then rots because they're not going to get paid for it. So it's, it's a relationship between the producer, the farmer and the consumer and the middleman or the middle person, which is the supermarket or the farmer's market or the shop needs to be the conduit for which good food flows. If bad food flows into the consumer experience, then the supply chain is only ever going to be producing food that makes money. So sugar, fat, wheat, 
flat, you know, all of these really sort of negative impact foods, when actually the supply chain must be growing food that's seasonal, must be growing food that's uh, more local, but also really nutritious. And to grow nutritious food, you have to have healthy soil. It's important that all supermarkets support this. I built the People's Supermarket and opened it 10 years ago now in order to tell that story. So chefs can definitely influence, but farmers can also influence. But, but sometimes it's the actual general public who need to influence the supermarket behavior, which will drive supply chain behavior. I love what you said, the relationship between the producer, the farmer and the consumer. That's something that, you know, um, is so important. But tell us how, in your view, can the Chef's Manifesto specially support a shift to more climate friendly and healthy kitchens and communities? And how do the eight thematic areas address this? To talk about the Chef's Manifesto specifically, it is that the manifesto really works perfectly inside the kitchen environment. It lays out how to buy food. It lays out, you know, who to buy food from. It says making sure to lower your energy, making sure to, to eat less meat, to make sure there's a balanced menu inside your business. It also talks about heritage varieties and much more locally focused produce. Um, wherever you are in the world, the Chef's Manifesto works. The Manifesto isn't saying this is what you should eat because this has been written in London and therefore the diet is very good for someone in southern China. That's not the case at all. The Chef's Manifesto is simply put across eight thematic areas that address the region in which you're in. So if you're going to pay respect to Earth and its oceans, then pay respect to the soil that's on your doorstep. If you're lucky enough to have the sea around you, if you're landlocked, then make sure that your freshwater supply is healthy because water is the most vital resource on this planet. The manifesto talks about making sure that we respect that, respecting people, making sure that there's nutritious food available for all. But this isn't just about um, the climate. It's also about making sure that the human beings are fed and, and they're not going hungry. You know, um, the hungry people on this planet, it, it, it's a crime. So the Chef's Manifesto pushes a lot of boundaries. When you talk about healthy kitchens, in the manifesto. It's not just about a kitchen that is well lit or has got the fresh air in it, but there needs to be the mental health of the, the, of the teams too. And mental health is around understanding why the food that they're serving is put on the plates, the food that you're feeding your staff, making sure that your team know that the food that's coming in the back door and that's going out the front door is the best that they could produce, which gives a, a, a good sense of, of both well-being, but also trains people to become future chefs of a, a healthier planet. And the eight thematic areas are simply put, but in their own way are, are quite complex, whether or not you're trying to reduce energy or pay more respect to animals and really reduce the amount of animals you're eating entirely. The thematic areas are a very simple way for chefs to be able to narrate uh, how they do business. A healthy kitchen is a, is a vital place that can both teach, it can nourish uh, and also develop uh, the future of food. Absolutely. I think healthy kitchens create healthier communities. And I just have one last question for you. And that is to all the chefs out there, what would your number one message be on how to drive action on achieving the SDGs and good food for all? The sustainable development goals are big uh, and there's a broad reach. And I think to some degree, not getting too wound up about not achieving all of them. Uh, I think it's step by step. So the number one message is start by making your food delicious. If it's not delicious, people aren't going to believe this is achievable. So delicious food on a plate or in a bowl or in your child's packed lunchbox or in a fancy dinner for 500 people, it's got to be delicious because that gets people's attention. 
that's how you begin to achieve the focus on people saying, oh, wow, you know, this chef really has got my attention and is going to influence the way I think because their food is absolutely delicious. Then, of course, it's the ingredient that you put on that plate that gives you the deliciousness. The skill of the chef, of course, is a major part of that. But, you know, the, the, the produce is, is vital. So you've got skill and you've got product. Then, of course, you've got to make sure that there's nutrition involved. You can't be putting in sugar, fats and butters into every dish. And I mean, I know a lot of chefs still aren't really growing up. And I don't mean to be rude here, but, you know, you've got to change the way that you approach food on a plate. So, you know, rethink what it is that you're doing on a plate as a chef. I know this isn't a number one message, but <laughs> there's a lot of messages in one in, in how to achieve what the sustainable development goals stand for is make it delicious, um, make it simple and rethink the way that bringing in food into your kitchen can be um, a simple process, turning it into something delicious without having to be overly fancy with the sugars and the fats and perhaps the, the products in the food that might not be necessary. Keep it simple, one step at a time, make it delicious. If as a chef you get those three things right, then I think you're going well some way to achieving the sustainable development goals. Wow, what a fantastic conversation. In this next segment, I want to take you all with me to LA to chat with a chef whom all of you know very well, most recently as your podcast host. I'm so excited to welcome Chef Alejandra Schrader and to hear more from her as a podcast guest about her experience as an author, plant-based nutrition certified food champion, culinary entrepreneur and activist. Alejandra, after having grown up in Venezuela, you moved to the US but used food as the conduit to connect to your culture and heritage. Over the years, you have been featured in many US television networks using your platform to showcase plant-based meals that are cooked smart and packed with amazing flavor and nutrition. Your advocacy centers mainly around sustainable diets and environmentally friendly farming practices. Welcome to the podcast, Chef Alejandra. You're a champion of plant-based cuisine and in 2021, you published the Low Carbon Cookbook. In this amazing cookbook, you detail through recipes for delicious dishes, how as a consumer and cook, you make the most climate-friendly choices. Could you share a little more with us how you got into climate-friendly cooking in the first place and why you think this is so crucial? Yes, and thank you for having me. I would have to first start by talking about the very beginning. I've, as a little girl, I already cared about how our actions affect Mother Earth. Even as a young adult, I was an architect first by training, and I was looking at how buildings affect the footprint of the ground where they stand. And then as a planner, also how our communities and the way that we live affect Mother Earth. And so that naturally transpired into my culinary career and how our choices, how the food that we eat, how we purchase our food, who we purchase it from, what kind of foods are we eating? And most recently, how the food that we waste affects our planet. And so all for the sake of Mother Earth, you know, I always talk about my book being a love letter to Mother Earth written from my kitchen. Out of that love and respect for Mother Earth and for the resources that it takes to grow our food, I figured that I would put together recipes that would encourage people 
to eat in a way that is delicious because that's the number one attraction for anyone to eat a dish that is delicious, that is beautiful, that appeals to our cultural traditions, that allows us to celebrate, but that is also good for the planet. And it was such a call to action for me. It really gave me a sense of purpose. It helped me transition into a plant-based diet myself. The more I knew, especially living in the United States where industrialized animal production is just such a massive generator of greenhouse gases, I couldn't even go in further, avoid to see the, unfortunately, the problem with animal welfare. Where I come from in Venezuela, it's not like that. You know, there's such a respectful way to raise cattle and to raise poultry. So I believe it's all tied together. And yes, even though it was the first driver was the climate, there were other factors that came to play in my decision, my cooking philosophy, and the kind of food that I want to promote. The most important part for me is, as a chef, I also wanted to, to talk to the average cook, the homemaker, the mother or the father cooking at home, because they outnumber the professional chefs in the kitchen. And I felt if I can empower people to cook in a way that is good for them, good for their families, and good for the planet, and by the way, also good for their pockets, then I really could be making a big difference because it's my mantra that individual actions can cause such a huge impact as part of a collective effort. And so I believe that if we give people the education and the empowerment to cook in such ways that they can lower their carbon footprints, we can make a huge impact on climate on the climate crisis and climate change in general. Absolutely. I mean, I stand by your mantra. I think all of our individual actions contribute to a larger picture. And that's really important. And I'm so glad to see that. And your beautiful book, I can't wait to read it. But on today's episode, we speak about climate-friendly, healthy food choices, specifically from the perspective of cooking and consuming. In your experience as a chef, what are some of the best working strategies to encourage such food choices? Yes, I believe that we have to do the best that we can. There's no way to do this perfectly. And a lot of people let perfect be the opposite of doable. I believe that we can start by making small changes in our kitchen, by maybe avoiding red meat once a week. Why? Because red meat is the biggest offender, you know, uh, when it comes to greenhouse gases. Maybe we can implement a meatless Monday, you know. You don't have to avoid food altogether. I don't identify as vegan. I identify as plant-based. And I just believe that even if you're incorporating more vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, algae, fungi into your plates... As much as you can, you are already able to make the difference. But as I mentioned, education is such a big part of this, right? Because a lot of people feel intimidated by cooking beans or by not having meat on the plate and trying to substitute it with something different. A lot of people are intimidated by 
by fungi, uh, mushrooms, by wild mushrooms, and they are such delicious ingredient. And so in, empowering people to get creative in the kitchen, I often say, one, maybe go to your farmer's market, to your local farm stand, or to your grocery store, and go to the produce section and try to pick one ingredient that you haven't cooked with before. If you're at a farmer's market or if you're in front of the, uh, the farmer's stand, you ask that farmer, what is this? Oh, that's a uh, rutabaga. Oh, how do I cook this? And they will be more than happy to share with you how to cook that deliciously. And now you're little by little enhancing, improving, expanding your culinary palette, right? Imagine you're a painter. Now you have yet another color on that palette to paint. So that would be sort of like one of the simpler strategies. I also talk about the fact that maybe we change the way we shop. How about we stay, if we do go to the regular supermarket in the perimeter of the store, that we bring our own containers maybe to buy bulk. And that way we are not purchasing product that comes wrapped in plastic. That's a way to avoid it. But we also are likely to buy maybe a smaller amount, maybe an amount that we will actually use instead of sitting in our pantry forever until we have to get rid of it. And finally, when we are at the house, I am just such a big proponent. And I will share with you, Anahita, that my book won the food waste category in the United States for the Gourmand World Cookbook Awards. And I am so proud that that effort to look into food waste as the cool ingredients, look at food waste as something that all of us should be trying to consume more at home. And so I tell people like, don't get rid of those beautiful carrot tops. And I know that you cook with a lot of these ingredients. I've seen you use uh, uh, carrot tops and, you know, radish greens and so many beautiful ingredients that so many people, unfortunately, at the market, they just rip the tops and leave them behind. And I feel like my grandma right behind them, putting them in a little baggie to take them home. So it's, it's really small efforts that, uh, that can start with very simple actions and then to, to a bigger commitment to incorporating, as I mentioned, plant-based ingredients and changing the mindset around what eating healthy for people and planet looks like. Absolutely. I mean, I think I agree with all your points and there's something that I practice. Recently, I just shared something about amaranth leaves today. A lot of people didn't know that amaranth leaves are edible. You can use them in a salad. You can do a stir fry. I just made a simple sabzi, which is a stir fry uh, today for lunch. And I thought that, you know, it's all about creating that awareness and sharing that education um, so that more and more people follow you. So um, an important question, which is good food begins with farmers, those men and women working on the front lines of our food systems. Chefs, of course, work with farmers closely from all over the world. Could you share a little bit about how you worked with farmers and others to source ingredients and why you think that close connection is so important? Oh, close connection is so important and for so many reasons. And many of them causes that in part of the thematic areas of the chef's manifesto, right? Because not only we're looking after the planet, but we're also understanding that working closely with farmers also improve their livelihoods, also uh, promote uh, farming and sustainable farming practices that are better for the planet. So working closely with farmers 
farmers, it's good in so many different layers, especially here in the United States where monocrop agriculture is so prevalent. And especially if you do a fly coast to coast, you can see endless, endless hectares of really yellow fields. And you can tell that already from the sky that the ground is depleted. And I always really talk about the fact that small farmers are much less likely to be engaging in monocrop farming practices and more into sustainable farming practices, whether it's regenerative agriculture, organic farming, the use of cover crops, the use of doing the, the change of crops throughout the year so that they can replenish the soil with what they plant. And so I believe is super important. I feel like there's a personal responsibility to not just work with the small farmers, but highlight them on my menus to let the community know where is that radish coming from. It's, you know, so and so farm and it's owned by a family that has been working the land for you know, four generations, go check them out to give them that space, to give them that platform so that other people can support their practices because it is really difficult a lot of times for farmers. And talking about climate, right? Climate change, one of the first people that affects are the farmers, whether it's drought or flooding. Farmers are really, really, unfortunately, at the mercy of climate change. And so, you know, we need to do a better job at supporting them. How we eat, right? The more fresh products that we consume, the more likely and the more opportunity that we have to support small farmers. So um, you've represented the Chef's Manifesto at multiple occasions and you were part of the launch of the Eat Lancet series with a focus on how to encourage a nutritious diet that's also within planetary boundaries. Could you expand a little bit on this effort and on what role chefs play in it? Yes, and I am sure you would share with me the sentiment that as a chef, I feel like, yes, we are finally being brought into the conversation. We have been now officially like reserved a seat at the table because in a world where now we have science focusing on food, understanding, researching food as a way to promote uh, sustainability, biodiversity, and a, a greener planet, you can do all the research that you want, but unless I get to cook that food and I get to help people understand how to cook that food, we don't really get to perpetuate and really um, piggyback from that effort. So yes, I was so uh, excited and proud to represent the Chef's Manifesto at the launch of the Eat report um, at the United Nations and you know in a place where there were scientists and people that worked in agriculture it was just so nice to just bring that perspective that you know encouraging people to get creative the eat report talks about and obviously planetary boundaries look different for different regions it's not always not eating meat because some Let's just say some of the Nordic countries just don't have that opportunity because of weather conditions or regional practices. But how about we just focus not on what we have to stop eating, but in the vast array of ingredients, there are 
somewhere between 30 and 50,000 edible plants on this planet. Different studies show different numbers. But we're doing an awful job at doing justice to that. You know, 60% of humanity's calories come from only three crops, soy, maize, and rice. And so that was so valuable to have a report talking about that the same food, and I'm talking about the Eat Lancet report, that the same food that it's great for human health will also save Mother Earth and promote sustainability and help us battle this climate crisis. So we're not talking about two different approaches when it comes to food. The same food that does these wonders for our human health is the same food that will make our Mother Earth come back and thrive. Absolutely. I think we can talk about food and chefs and all the amazing work and climate friendly cooking that you've been doing all day long. But it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today for this important conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really appreciate it. For the final conversation of this episode, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Bruce German, professor and chemist of food science and technology at the University of California and the director for the university's Food for Health Institute. Dr. German, in your work, you use breast milk as the model for the genetic blueprint for foods that support health, as breast milk evolves for the purpose of nourishing growing mammals. This evolutionary logic forms the basis of your team's research for discovering physical, functional and nutritional properties of milk components and applying these properties to other foods. We're so excited to have you on the podcast to chat about how these insights apply to food choices that are healthy and good for our planet. Welcome to the Chef's Manifesto podcast. Dr. German, you're one of the lead scientists behind the periodic table of food. Could you share with us what this effort is about and what this has to do with today's topic of conversation, climate-friendly, healthy food choices? Hi, yes, and delighted to, to be speaking with you. This is one of those rare opportunities in human history where urgent need meets innovation. One of the great successes of the 20th century was in identifying all of the essential nutrients, the vitamins, minerals, amino acids, and fatty acids that humans need to grow, reproduce, and be successful. By any scientific criterion, this was a magnificent success. Unfortunately, one of the consequences of that was thinking that we've solved food, we don't need to spend any more time thinking about it, uh, and we'll all be healthy. And now we realize that food, agriculture, and the food supply is at the center of, of three of the major challenges to the world. Most of the world is suffering from ill health, a variety of cardiometabolic diseases from obesity to inflammation. It's compromising our lives, our lifestyles, our quality of life, uh, and diets are at the center of that problem. We're consuming diets that are not consistent with good health. Also, the environment. Human activity is having a major impact on the environment and causing climate change, and agriculture and food production is part of the problem. Agriculture represents about a third of the climate change drivers. Uh, and finally, income disparity. The world's 
cultures and social fabrics are being destabilized by the tragic difference in income across society. And again, agriculture and food production represent, in most places, the poorest people. We've got a massive problem <laughs> with, with food, and, and we have to solve it. And one of the things that people begin to realize is we don't even know what it is. We do not know the fundamental composition of food. We don't know what it's made of. We don't know the chemicals in it. As a result, we can't use the modern tools of science, technology, to solve these big problems. So the Periodic Table of Foods Initiative is a very bold and ambitious initiative taking advantage of major changes in the ability of science to measure the components of food. Ten years ago, we couldn't be having this conversation. The analytical chemical capabilities to measure food didn't exist, but now they do. It's the wonderful answer to the question, what if you could measure the composition of all foods everywhere? What would you do? And we're at that point. The key thing is to measure foods around the world, to engage everyone in building this database, then let everybody in the world, from agricultural producers to chefs to consumers, to know what it is that's in food so that they can use that knowledge to innovate and solve our major problems. So it's exciting to think that through the periodic table of food, we'll have, just as you explained, a fundamentally clearer understanding to what's in our food. We understand that you'll be able to link that as well to how food is grown. So talk to us a little bit about what it would mean to link food production practices and whether they're regenerative or not to the nutrient density of our food. How will this drive consumer choices? That's a wonderful question. What we have to do is think a little bit about what diet represents. So if I can use a metaphor, construction of a home. We all know what it takes to build a home. We need building materials. We need bricks and wood. We need nails. We need windows and doors. Diet is very much like that. Every day with our diet, we rebuild ourselves a little bit. So we are both a reflection of a diet and the consequences of our diet. But diet isn't quite like constructing a building, your home, because what we eat, all the plants, the animals, the microbes that form the basis of our diet, they're also living organisms. We harvest them, process them, and then consume them. So the metaphor is more like we're building homes by first deconstructing homes. If you think about it, you can only build a home with the building materials that you have on hand. I will be able to construct a home that's only as large and as ambitious as the limiting factor of the things I'm using. So it doesn't matter if I have 10 times as much wood for a home, 10 times as much nails. If I only have one window, my home is going to have one window. And so if we take that to the metaphor of diet. We don't know what the building materials are that are available. And as a result, one of the consequences of that, we grow lots of uh, food materials, we put them in the marketplace, we select from those, and what we don't select, we throw away. It's a massive problem of waste. And that's because we literally don't know what food is. Imagine if we knew every single component that we need and every single component that food contains. 
we could start modern inventory control. So we would grow exactly what the world needs, both locally and globally. We'd start managing the food enterprise as what we'll call a knowledge-based system. And there are lots of knowledge-based systems that make the world a pleasant place for us today. We need to make food and our diet a knowledge-based system. In your research, you focus on food science and technology, researching the role of human breast milk and other components in the diet and developing ways to assess health and metabolism in response to foods. Can you share with our listeners what findings your research has produced? So let me tell you a little bit about the model. The mammalian mother, she literally dissolves herself to make a complete and comprehensive diet for her infant. It's a remarkable biological idea. So it's a model both of complete nourishment and of sustainability. That is, everything in milk costs the mother. If it doesn't profit the infant, then the cost of the mother will drive it out of milk. But if anything in milk helps the success of that healthy baby to grow, to perform, to protect and rebuild itself every day, then it's hard to imagine anything under more positive selective pressure as food. So we have been taking milk apart with that in mind. And everything in milk turns out to be fascinating. But let me give you one example. So remember the model. The mother's dissolving herself to make a complete food for her infant. Doesn't profit the infant, then the cost is devastating to the mother. Well, imagine our surprise when we're taking human breast milk apart compositionally, and we discover that the third most abundant class of components in breast milk are undigestible by the baby. Why would mothers dissolve themselves to make undigestible matter? The baby can't digest it. Mothers are dissolving themselves to make baby poop. <laughs> Why? So, first of all, what, what is it? We used very much state-of-the-art analytical chemistry pioneered by a brilliant chemist, Carlito Labrilla, to analyze these undigestible molecules. And it turns out they're little chunks of fiber, carbohydrate, and complicated linkages. And so it's not like the fiber you eat in a plant that are very long. These are fiber, but little tiny chunks. They're not from the mother's diet. She actually makes them. So we knew what they were. And it turns out there are dozens of these in human breast milk, and they're highly abundant. So the next question, of course, well, what do they do? If they're not feeding the baby, what else could they be doing? So one of the questions we asked was, well, do they feed bacteria? Bacteria are in babies. Maybe this is feeding bacteria. We tested that. They don't. So bacteria, in general, cannot grow on this fiber in babies. But then, with help David Mills, again, a brilliant uh, scientist at the University of California, Davis, discovered a bacteria from the intestine of a breastfed baby that was able to digest and grow on all of these complex fiber molecules, oligosaccharides, in the intestine of a breastfed baby. This is a brilliant idea from evolution. Mothers are literally recruiting another life form to babysit their baby. And they're making sure that only one bacterium grows successfully by selectively feeding that one. And now we're realizing that this bacteria protects the baby from pathogenic bacteria. It guides the immune system and its development. It fuels the intestine and even provides essential nutrients. 
It's a remarkable idea. We only discovered it because we took such detailed approaches to analyze the composition of human milk. But now we realize there's as much complex oligosaccharides in human breast milk as there is protein. From an evolutionary perspective, it is important for the mother to feed the bacteria in the baby as the baby. That means the rest of us have to look at our diet from that perspective as well. What are the bacteria in us and what are we eating that is feeding them? And in order to understand how to feed the right bacteria, we have to know the structure of fiber in absolute structural detail. And that's now possible. And so the Periodic Table of Foods Initiative is building the knowledge we'll need so that every one of us can nourish ourselves and nourish the right bacteria. Thank you so much. I mean, there's so much to learn from there and so many little details. But as a chef, I'm keen to chat a little bit about concrete actions we can take in our kitchens. Could you share with us what your go-to climate-friendly healthy recipe is? Oh, yes, that's a very personal question. <laughs> I'm on the uh, super taster side of the tasting spectrum. I tend to cook rather bland compared to what what you great chefs would, would view, so I wouldn't be your perfect customer. Uh, for me, risotto is a wonderful platform. Uh, so when I have to make dinner and there's leftovers or small portions of different uh, vegetables, etc., I can put them together and, uh, and risotto is my go-to meal and I can flavor it exactly the way I want. But when I'm going to be bold, <laughs> Then for me, spinach niçoise. We make a dish where we take spinach, basil, onions, tomatoes, and you cook them each separately to their exact amount of texture. So the onions are caramelized just right. And then it all comes together at the end in this one dish. It's delicious. Uh, it's very much in keeping with sustainability goals. Everything is available local and, and at the end, delicious. I mean, that sounds wonderful. A beautiful plate of biodiverse ingredients and, you know, they're healthy and delicious. So why not? I mean, that sounds great. And I must try that at home and take probably take the recipe from you. So as we wrap up, what would be your number one message to all the chefs from around the world who are listening to our conversation? That's probably the most important question you've asked. If you look at any human enterprise, there are nodes, there's a point in the enterprise where value is captured, where it becomes more valuable because of that step. In music, it's the speakers. In transportation, it's the cars. In food, it's the chefs. Chefs are where value is created. You take inexpensive ingredients and make it into delicious dishes. In many respects, Chefs are the gatekeepers of everything we will do to revolutionize the food system so we are healthier, the planet's healthier, and income is equitably distributed. We are in the problems we're in because everyone in the world is doing things a little bit wrong. That means that every chef has to help. Every chef has to be thinking about the health of the foods that they're providing and think what can they learn about the health of the ingredients that they're using. And importantly, every chef is in control of the ingredients that they source. And from a sustainability perspective, my particular target 
is wild. We are putting wild at risk. Everything that we consume, kill and consume that's wild, is having a consequence to the planet's biodiversity and sustainability. Do we really need to continue to harvest wild? And chefs control that. We know that we shouldn't be consuming endangered species. Well, in fact, everything's endangered now. So chefs can be part of the solution by being aware of what it is that they're using as ingredients in its history. Make themselves, in essence, good stewards of the entire process. And chefs can be the ones to recognize where in the entire supply chain the contributions are important. They can make sure that the farms that produce the ingredients they used are recognized by uh, their customers, that they tip the farmers. Why not? So they can be the ones that recognize how everybody is contributing to the value of the proposition that they're creating so much value for. And finally, we will not change the food supply, whether for health or the planet or social justice, if it destroys our quality of life in so doing. Food is central to what we think of ourselves, our family, the joy in life. Chefs can really help by making food delicious, by empowering recipes and ways to process so that everyone who's responsible for making food for themselves, for their family, and for the, the broader community can make things that are nourishing and sustainable and delicious. So the role of the chef is pivotal. We need to recruit every chef to this entire enterprise. Thank you so much. I mean, those words are always going to stick with me where you said that chefs are where value is created. I love that. And I also loved where you said that chefs are the gatekeepers for the future. And I think that's always going to stay with me. And thank you so much for your time today. It was a lovely conversation. Thank you. Today's conversations have highlighted the importance of food choices, the choices each and every one of us makes every day, but also the choices that are made along the value chains from farmers right down to us chefs. It was amazing to talk about how to drive climate-friendly, healthy food choices with today's guests, unveiling and understanding more about how we can enact real change and lead by example in our kitchens, restaurants and communities. And that's all for today. I will chat with you on the second episode in this mini season and I'm already excited for the next conversations. I've been your host, Chef Anahita Dhondi. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Please subscribe to our channels, rate and comment below. Your feedback is invaluable to us and your participation really helps boost our reach. We want to talk to and engage with as many chefs as we can from around the world to talk about sustainability and strengthen our global community and movement of chefs at the forefront of change. Thank you for listening.